0: To make war upon rebellion is messy and slow, says T.E. Lawrence, like eating soup with a knife. Now, I admit, I find life messy, but I never seem to feel that it's slow. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Episode 38, Achieving Liberation. Now, I admit it, I could delve into the details of the story of the underground struggle forever. Not only do I just love it, this chapter of our tale has a mix of history, ideology, drama, and death, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Maccabees. I mean, even the three Roman wars can't touch it, because with all their blood and fire, and the tremendous Torah that came out of them, in the end of the day, we lost all three. But 1947 is different. For the first time since the Greeks, Am Yisrael is about to throw an occupier out of our country, and I'm kind of excited. And this success will set the stage for the birth of the third commonwealth that the Jews have known in our homeland throughout our history. Now, while one might think that this would be seen by the Jews as an unequivocally good thing, it's just not so, not then, and to my great sorrow, not now either. There are lots of reasons why the state of Israel has lost its shine for many Jews today, and we're going to have to dig into them in the coming season. But for now, I want to talk about 1947, and the complications presented by our re-entry into the land through the means of a national liberation movement. A look back at our story tells us that the method of entry into the land deeply defines the nature of the society that's built there. Starting with Joshua's path of conquest, the walls of Jericho, the defeat of the 31 Canaanite kings at Megiddo, the division of the tribal lands, we can see that the method set the pattern for the story of biblical Israel and the kingdom that emerged from it. And, as we learned back at the beginning of season 1, what is indeed acquired by conquest is also truly lost when someone else takes it away from you. That's true whatever your stance on historicity, Bible, and ancient Near Eastern history. Call it a literal or literary truth. If the principle of might makes right is true, then it holds true whether you're the winner or the loser. And if you paid attention to the first third of the first season, then you know how the return of Ezra Nehemiah and Zerubel under the ages of a foreign empire in many ways set the mold for the Second Temple period. There was international legitimacy, so long as we knew our proper role as a subservient client state. To do anything more was to buck the system that had brought us home and therefore spelled disaster. So in light of this idea that the method of entry for the first two common wells really set the stage for the types of societies that emerge, it behooves us to think about the liberation model of 1947 and how it's going to impact not only our return to the land, but the state that we'll build there. We'll unpack the state in due time. But today, my eye is on how Zionism, as a movement, might be defined as the most ruthless and successful national liberation movement of the modern era. And I want to think about the nature of the relationships that that national struggle sets up between Jews and the nations of the world. I want to think about how this struggle influenced the nature of the government that the Zionists were seeking to establish. And I want to consider how this revolutionary chapter of our story fits into the arc of the divine relationship with Israel, which so often finds its most powerful expression through our history. And in order to do this properly, before we launch into the bread and butter of the historical narrative, I want to give you a frame that's actually offered first by the Gemara in Ketubot. Because there, almost at the very end of the tractate, you can look it up at 110b, 111a, we find a framework for exile. Because in the midst of lots of discussions about the land of Israel, the Gemara says that actually, according to some opinions, it's forbidden to leave the land of Babylon and go up to the land of Israel because God bound Am Yisrael into exile with three oaths. Truth is, he bound us with two, and the third actually applies to the nations of the world. First, First, you shouldn't go up like a wall, meaning that Am Israel should not go up to the land altogether as if surrounded by a wall, in short, not by force. Closely related to this was the second oath that we not rebel against the nations of the world. After all, since the very beginning of the Jewish story, we've been tracing a storyline in which Malchut, kingship, in the sense of the power to define the external context of the world, was taken away from Israel and given into the hands of the nations. Therefore, to rebel against that kingship is to rebel against God. So far, it's not sounding so good for militant Zionism liberation. And also, you might get a sense why a movement founded on Leon Pinsker's desire for auto-emancipation would rub the religious world in the extremely wrong way. But, you know, there were three O's. The third one like I said, binds the nations rather than Israel. And the Gemara tells us that God made the nations swear that they shall not oppress Israel too much. It always brings a chill to me when I say that. It just begs the question, how much is too much? The Crusades? The Dimi status in Islam? The expulsion from Spain? Now we could split hairs down through the centuries over this question, but at the end of the day, I think we'll all agree, Auschwitz is too much. And so, beyond the elements of European enlightened philosophy and romantic nationalism, beyond the elements of Jewish cultural revival, and even beyond the upheavals of colonial movements and world wars that set the stage for Zionist success, we have survivalist Zionism, which boils down to enough is enough. In fact, it's too much. The nations have broken their oath, and so ours Are no longer binding. So, what lies ahead is the question of what our national rebirth means in relation to the nations, and in relation to ourselves, and in relation to God. Is it simply rebellion, or will a new model of relationship emerge? Now, we're going to end the episode at that question with UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Commission on Palestine. But before we get there, we need to finish the story of how we went up like a wall and how the British got the boot. When General Allen Cunningham took up the position of British High Commissioner of Palestine in November of 1945, he was told that his job was simply to keep the peace in Palestine. Now, If you recall, the Underground War was well underway by that point. World War II was over, and the United Resistance was building steam. So sending a military man recently blooded in the wars of North Africa to keep the peace was a bit of an act of escalation. And one which failed. Because less than two years later, in February of 1947, Arthur Creech Jones, Secretary of State for the Colonies, described the mandatory administration as virtually a besieged garrison. Now how is it that a relative handful of guerrilla fighters and terrorists managed to bring the mighty british empire to its knees well first of all we have to keep the global context clearly in sight world war ii had cost britain almost half its foreign investments and a third of its merchant fleet in 45 they were spending abroad more than twice their national earnings which meant they were bleeding out foreign capital and debt was piling up furthermore In 1946 and 47, British forces were still deployed around the world, a major drain on their economy, whose only possible solution was redeployment from overseas and large-scale demobilization. But in the years 1945 to 47, the Jewish revolt forced Britain to keep close to 100,000 troops in the Palestine mandate. That's five times as many as they used to crush the Arab revolt of the 30s and it doesn't even include the more than 20,000 members of the Palestine Police Force. Now, in general, the colonial era is over by this point. The writing has been on the wall for the British in India for quite some time, and when the Royal Indian Navy mutinied in 1946, the end became clear for everyone to read. Imperial control in Egypt began to retreat already in the early 20s, despite the central role Egypt played as a staging ground For the british military in world war ii at this point britain's only aspiration is to maintain control of the vital suez canal and even that is looking dicey so on one hand all these developments will strengthen british resolve to hold out in palestine after all the oil alone that flows from the fields in iraq down to the refinery and port of haifa is a critical economic and military asset whose value grows every single day and The use of the mandate as a staging ground for British air, land, and sea forces is critical now that Egypt is thrown off of their yoke. The land of Israel is perfectly positioned to allow protection of the Suez Canal and a projection of power, be it west toward Europe, east toward India, and even north against the newly rising Soviet threat. So like I said, on one hand, imperial interest says, keep the land of Israel firmly in your grasp. At the same time, those very same facts of empire make the blows of the Jewish insurgency that much more painful, and all the less tolerable in the eyes of the British home front, who are struggling economically, terribly war weary, and less and less attached to the colonial model every single day. So that's where the British are at. Between a rock and a hard place, which is at least half of their own making. What's driving the underground right now? First of all, Despite the withdrawal of the Haganah from the United Resistance in the wake of the King David Hotel bombing in the summer of 1946, war rages on. Even after the breakup of that resistance, the Lehi and the Irgun went on to execute some 280 operations in the 10 months afterwards. And the Haganah only retreated from the street battlefront in 46. They shifted their focus back to what they deemed to be the core mission of illegal immigration and settlement and not only shifted, but intensified. But like I said, the question is, what was driving them? So first of all, the official leadership of the Yishuv had long denied that they were in a fight for independence. In their eyes, the British were the source of legitimate political power, not an illegal, illegitimate occupier that needed to be driven out. Their goal had always been, even in the time of the United Resistance, to pressure British policymakers back toward a focus on the Jewish home promised by the mandate. Without any fixation on what that home would look like, state, commonwealth, protectorate, or what have you, they just wanted a place the Jews could go. Though, as there was a split in the mainstream leadership between the militants and moderates over the use of violence against the British, so too there was a split over this idea of the goal of the state. Ben-Gurion, of course, led the militant camp on both fronts. He was, after all, the first socialist leader to announce the switch from a transnational to a national visit. As he said, Mi ma'amad l'am, from a class to a nation, which awkwardly makes him the first Jewish national socialist. Now, he endorsed the Biltmore program formulated by American Zionists during World War II in 1942, which called for a state. And, of course, he will be the powerful and all but autocratic leader who embraces right? that sort of quasi-kosher sort of fascism, which, frankly, can save a state in the process of formation from becoming just another state of chaos and war. Look what happens in the world all around us. And Ben-Gurion did it in order to birth the new state. And, frankly, he succeeded beyond anyone's wildest imagination. But that story lies ahead in Season 3. For now... The Haganah and its politicians are pushing to hold every piece of land they can lay their hands on and expand the borders as much as they can, and to bring every able-bodied man they can find into the country before real war breaks out with the Arabs. So that's one. Two is the Lehi. In 1946, the Lehi was under the command of Natan Yellen Moore. Now, the Lehi was certainly fighting for national independence, but the anti-colonialist nature of their struggle took an increasing focus in their vision as things heated up. And seeing as the fight against empire is an intrinsically transnational conception, by the way, as the socialism that drove the early founders, and we heard this from Rav Yehuda Cohen in the last interlude, the anti-colonial focus is going to have some surprising results for what becomes of the Lehi leadership once the state comes into being. For now practically, Yellen Moore had one eye toward the Soviet Union as allies in this struggle against the imperial occupier. And he knew that as World War II ended and the Cold War heated up, the USSR would cheer any blow to British interests in the Middle East and might just be willing to back those who gave them. It's important to remember that the cost of maintaining the mandate is a very important factor in our struggle and it grows every year. Annual expenditures on the British forces stationed in Palestine, consumed nearly a quarter of the total defense budget of the empire by 1947. Between July 45 and November 47, Britain spent an estimated 100 million pounds on their forces in the land of Israel. So I can imagine that the Soviets were overjoyed. And furthermore, they were just as happy as the underground when the Lehi managed to sabotage the Haifa oil refinery on March 31, 1947, because it was the single most costly operation of the entire underground war. 16,000 tons of petroleum products were destroyed, and the site burned for more than three weeks. It was a blow struck at the heart of Britain's colonial interests, and it hurt them in the pocket. Nevertheless, despite their passion and ideological clarity, the Lehi really only consisted of a few hundred fighters. If you're going to make a war of liberation, you need an army. And that brings us back to Menachem Begin and the Irgun. Now, the Irgun was certainly fighting a war for independence, and they conceived of themselves as a guerrilla army, unlike the Leche, who called themselves proudly terrorists. Yeah. Their estimated strength in 1945 was approximately 1,500, and as the cycle of war and repression advanced, volunteers flocked to their banner. you recall, I hope, that the Irgun strategy was to provoke British oppression through relentless attacks. And then that oppression would in turn raise the entire yeshuv against the occupier and spark what Bacon called a liberation war, a just war which is conducted by an oppressed people against a foreign power that has enslaved it and its country. And war it was. Between 1945 and 47, underground operations killed and wounded over 616 British personnel. And the Irgun claimed the lion's share. Furthermore, Begin's strategy was working. As we'll see in the episode ahead, he drove the cycle of violence and oppression mercilessly, and the British flailed away on both the military and political fronts, failing to stop the violence or to offer a viable alternative to it. But ironically, it was actually Ben-Gurion and the Jewish Agency Executive and the Haganah, which was their army, which stood to benefit most from Begin's work. Because they could just stand to the side as the bombs and guns went off, clucking their tongues at the excesses of the terrorists, and all the while shaking their heads no as the British produced one unsatisfactory solution after another. And every day, the pressure would grow as the Irgun continued to wreak havoc in the mandate. Now, what we haven't discussed is that the Jewish agency at this point is fast becoming a state-in-waiting in its administrative and political institutions and Ben-Gurion knew that any political fruits that Begin's tactics managed to knock off the tree would fall directly into his lap. If the British left tomorrow, it would be the mainstream Zionists in charge, not some underground army. But recall, Begin's greatness was in his grasp of the political situation. He knew well that he would involuntarily become the military arm of Ben-Gurion's goals, and he hadn't forgotten the history between them. After all, the bruises of the hunting season were still fresh a year ago when they joined together in the United Resistance. Nevertheless, Begin was committed to ending the British occupation regardless of which Jew was in charge when the war ended. And Begin understood that the most effective way to drive the British out was not simply to make them bleed, but to humiliate them in the process. When General Miles Dempsey assumed command of British forces in the Middle East in June of 1946, Field Marshal Montgomery, hero of Alamein and now chief of staff for the British military, warned him of, quote, the fanatical and cunning nature of his enemy and the un-English methods that this enemy will use. He furthermore told Dempsey that, now that the Jews have flung the gauntlet in our face, they must be utterly and completely defeated and their illegal organization smashed forever. It sounds intimidating, but in reality, these are just the noises of an angry military man trying to solve a political problem. Remember the old adage, to someone whose only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. The Underground's goals were essentially political. Independence or at least autonomy, war was a means to that end. But the army couldn't afford to consider the political dimensions of their security challenge because the politicians couldn't make up their minds what the mission was. The mandate was too precious to lose, but too expensive to keep. And the half measures they periodically offered were rejected out of hand by Jew and Arab alike. So, in the absence of any viable policy goal, the civil administration in the mandate fell back on an approach of brute force, whose goal was simply to keep order and retain control. Now I want to stay focused on the local story here, but since there's an obvious resonance to a certain situation in which Israel finds itself today, I want to get meta for just a moment. Because when I read the following passage to my wife, she thought I was reading from today's newspaper rather than from a PhD analysis of British security doctrine in 1947 Mandatory Palestine. It's a quote, A counterinsurgency campaign without a clear strategic objective left the security forces to apply repression in a political vacuum. Sound familiar? So when you add this to Begin's leverage strategy, meaning leveraging British oppression to increase Jewish resentment and thereby gain support for the struggle against their occupation, then the parallel becomes painfully clear. So whatever political situation you envision to the mess in which we find ourselves today, you have been warned by history. So back in our story, the army geared up to smash the Jewish revolt. But they knew in their hearts that these are the survivalists Zionists. Some of them have already been to the Nazi hell and back. Without a viable political alternative, the Jews were not going to stop until they had a home. And remember, the British are not the Nazis. Like Gandhi and the Indian independence movement, who were also at the height of their struggle in 47 don't forget, the Irgun counted on the fact that the Briton is a society of law whose soldiers are not free to suppress rebellion in a sea of blood. And in Bacon's eyes, blood wasn't even necessary in order to end the occupation. Quote, The very existence of an underground, which oppression, hanging, torture, and deportation fail to crush or weaken, must, in the end, undermine the prestige of a colonial regime that lives by the legend of its omnipotence. Every attack which it fails to prevent is a blow to its standing. Even if the attack does not succeed, it makes a dent in that prestige, and that dent widens into a crack which is extended with every succeeding attack. And if we want to try and identify the moment in which that dent finally cracked in the British armor, you could do worse than the night of the whippings. On December 13, 1946, the Irgun robbed a bank in Jaffa. It was what we call an appropriation operation, whose proceeds would go to fund the war, except in this case, it was a botched job. Three fighters were caught, and they stood trial a few days later. By this point in our story, the emergency regulations are in full effect, and the court that tried Benjamin Nes, Eliezer Sudit, and 17-year-old Benjamin Kimchi was a military one. Nes and Sudit were convicted of robbery and illegal possession of firearms and condemned to 18 years in prison a lenient sentence by the way when you consider that the court had the right to execute them kimchi was also convicted of discharging a firearm with intent to endanger life and sentenced to 18 years and perhaps it was his refusal to recognize the jurisdiction of the court a practice that they adopted from the irish struggle against the british that brought on an additional humiliating punishment of 18 lashes. And so he joined another Irgun member, Arun Katz, who was awaiting a similar punishment for possession of propaganda material. Now, the purpose of this punishment is clear. A man might be imprisoned by their equal with honor. An army imprisons its enemies, but a master whips their dog. And that message wasn't lost on the Irgun high command. In their eyes, the threat of the whip was a matter with serious moral and even political implications. Discussing their decision to react, Begin later wrote, These lashes would wound the soul of Eretz Israel. Was an oppressor now to whip us in our own land? And so the Irgun issued the following warning. If the sentence is put into effect, every officer of the British Occupation Army in Eretz Israel will be liable to be punished in the same way, with 18 lashes. But the army was in no mood to bow to terrorist blackmail, as they called it, and on 27th of December Aaron Kimchi was duly flogged. That very night, the Voice of Fighting Zion, the Irgun's underground radio station, announced its own verdict. For centuries you have been whipping natives in your colonies with impunity in your foolish pride you dare to consider the sons of Israel in Eretz Israel as natives as well. You are mistaken. Zion is not exile. The Hebrews are not Zulus. You will not whip Hebrews in their homeland. And if you do, then His Majesty's officers will be whipped in full public view. The next day, armed Irgun men broke into the Hotel Metropole in Netanya, where they found Major Paddy Brett sitting with his wife in a lounge. And before the Major knew what was happening, they snatched him up and whisked him away to a eucalyptus grove, where the fighters stripped him to his underwear. They then read out his sentence and administered 18 blows. Then, keeping the Major's pants for any possible future underground use, they returned him to the hotel half-naked and shaken. Around about the same time in Rishon LeZion another team seized a British sergeant major who'd been dancing with a local girl at Cafe Teresa and flogged him right there in the street. While in Tel Aviv, two sergeants were kidnapped from in front of their hotel, tied to a tree in the public park, and beaten 18 times each. Begin knew that he had just raised the ante, but he was gambling for broke. And he hadn't forgotten Aaron Katz, who still awaited his own court-ordered beating. So He saw their beating and raised them another notch. That night, another warning was issued to the British. If the oppressors dare in the future to abuse the bodies and the human and national honor of Jewish youths, we shall no longer reply with the whip. We shall reply with fire. At this point, the politicians stepped in between the snarling dogs. On the grounds of Katz's alleged poor health, the civil administration overruled the military court and revoked the second whipping sentence. To say that the army was furious is a gross understatement. Netanya, Petach Tigva, Rijon Litsion, and parts of Tel Aviv were all cordoned off to hunt for the perpetrators. Thousands of people were detained and questioned. Finally, a roadblock in Kvarsaba stopped the car, transporting five Irgun men. They were armed with guns and carrying a whip. Avraham Mizrahi was killed when the soldiers at the roadblock opened fire on the car, while Eliezer Khanshi Morchai Alkhalay, Yechiel Dresner and Chaim Golevski were all captured when the four stood trial before a military court. The results were basically a foregone conclusion, though they were being tried on capital charges, all refused to participate in the proceedings, insisting, like Kimche before them, that the court lacked authority to judge them. after only ninety minutes. The verdicts were handed down. Alkaliai, Dresner and Koshni were sentenced to death. While Golesky received life in prison, because at 17 he was too young for the death penalty under British law, the four stood and began to sing Hatikva. The three sentenced to death joined a fourth captive Irgun member, Dov Gruner, on death row. And in his last act as commander of military forces in Palestine, General Evelyn Barker confirmed their sentences just before he left the country. The whole yeshuv was stunned. To date, 22 death sentences had actually been handed down to Jews during the underground struggle, but not a single one had been carried out. By comparison, by the way, 108 of the 182 Arabs sentenced to death during the Arab revolt were actually executed by the British. But what the Shu didn't know is that on the 1st of January, 1947, the British Cabinet Defense Committee sat in order to finally resolve a long-standing dispute between the colonial and war officers over military policy in Palestine. Was it to be politics or war? Secretary of State for the Colonies, Arthur Creech Jones, faced off against Chief of Staff Montgomery and Secretary of State for War, F.J. Bellinger. Bellinger warned that continued restraint of the army might, quote, lead to a situation in which members of the armed forces would take things into their own hands. The Field Marshal attacked the administration's reversal of the flogging sentence on the second terrace, saying that, quote, By taking this line, we were playing into the hands of the terrorists who merely say, You do not dare. It is a weak and thoroughly bad policy, which can only make things more difficult in the end for the government and the armed forces. The Colonial Secretary was unable to stand up against these claims. And as Montgomery later reported to his commander of forces in Palestine, Prime Minister Attlee was emphatic that leniency toward terrorists was an unsound policy, a view that the cabinet supported. And so the verdict was for war. And the first act was to send a message to High Commissioner Alan Cunningham ordering that sentences should be carried out in all cases of terrorists condemned to death unless there is some technical illegality. Cunningham, therefore, duly confirmed the death sentence on Dove Gruner, who'd been sitting in prison longest, and began to move forward with his execution. But, flush with victory, in reversing the flogging sentence, the Irgun issued a new warning. Execution of prisoners of war is premeditated murder. We warn the British regime of blood against the commission of this Execution of prisoners of war is premeditated murder. We warn the British regime of blood against the commission of this crime. And now the stakes began to rise rapidly. On January 26, the Irgun kidnapped Tel Aviv District Court Judge Ralph Wyndham, along with a British businessman, and they threatened to execute the two, along with seven other Britons chosen at random, if Gruner hang. The following day, Cunningham informed Secretary Creech Jones that in view of this, there has been no alternative but to respite the death sentence on Doug Gruner. Another victory for terror. And not only that, but less than two weeks later, on February 4th, the entire British policy in Palestine crossed a new threshold with the declaration of operations Polly, Cantonment, and Fantail. Polly was the evacuation of 1,700 British wives' children and non essential personnel from Palestine by rail to Egypt, while containment and fantail involved the construction of restricted barbed wire encircled security zones where all remaining personnel, civilian and military, were relocated. Now, the Army viewed the move as a military one, the necessary precursor to finally going on the offensive against the terrorists and to throwing the full weight of its coercive powers at the arrest of the uncooperative Jews of the Yishuv. But Menachem Begin saw it in an entirely different light. In his eyes, there could be no greater exposure of the British as foreign occupiers, and therefore no greater victory in the battle for liberation than this evacuation and retreat. The British had another home, and they'd sent their wives and children there, and they would go back too if he continued to push them into walled compounds. As the Daily Telegraph back in London concluded in a mid-February editorial, the evacuation of non-essential personnel was an admission that terrorism had succeeded in making the mandate ungovernable and had raised the status of the Irgun to that of an armed revolt. You can add to this the rapid failure of that security zone strategy. Attacks only escalated in the winter and spring of '47, reaching right into the heart of these British armed camps. Even the martial law that was declared in March failed to stop the Lechi and the Irgun now that they smelled blood in the water. And when Foreign Secretary Ernst Bevin announced two weeks after this operation that the British government had decided to hand over the Palestine question to the United Nations, the underground knew that full British retreat was just a matter of time. But, unfortunately, there was more blood yet to be spilled along the way. I love Jerusalem's street names. What could be better than a city that celebrates 3,000 years of history by naming its streets after famous people and key events? I mean, you can wander around, and it's like one unending history class. But I admit, I might be just a little uncomfortable living on a street named Those Who Went to the Gallows. There's a whole neighborhood in Talpiot named for the Ole HaGardom, the 12 members of the Leche and the Irgun who were tried in British mandatory courts and sentenced to death by hanging, most of them in Akko prison. And with the exception of the two Eliyahu's, whose story we told, they were the operatives who were executed in Egypt for the assassination of the British High Commissioner, Lord Moyne, and Shlomo ben Yosef, who you recall will be, was the Batari who first broke the restraint back in '38, All of the Olehagardom went to their death in 1947. Now, each one deserves his own story, and I can tell you they're all dramatic. But for the purpose of our story, I want to focus in on the general role that they played in the Underground's War of Liberation. As I just mentioned, as soon as Foreign Secretary Bevan made his announcement that Britain was washing its hands of the Palestine problem and turning it over to the United Nations, the Underground fighters smelled victory, and that sent them into a frenzy of violence. On March 1st, the Irgun killed more than 20 soldiers, 12 in a single grenade attack on their officers' club in Tel Aviv. And of course, I already mentioned the Lehi's devastating attack on the Haifa oil refinery at the end of March. But what they didn't know is that already on March 20th, the army had secured from the cabinet back in London approval of a new directive, one which governed the execution of condemned terrorists. And it stated, it is most important that the death sentences should be carried out irrespective of the possible repercussions from the Jews. Failure to carry out the death sentences would only serve to one, encourage terrorism, two, affect the morale of the troops adversely, three, alienate Arab opinion. And so, on April fifteenth, Dove Gruner, who had already been saved once by the Ergun, was transferred from his cell in Jerusalem to Akko prison in strict secrecy. And there rejoined three Irgunniks who had been captured after the night of the beatings, Yechiel Dresner, Mordechai Alchelai, and Eliezer Kashani. They were woken the next day before dawn and brought silently to the gallows. Or at least their executioners were silent, because when word passed through the prison that the four were walking their last mile, every Jewish prisoner burst into song. And so the four were escorted to their deaths by the sounds of the Jewish national anthem, Hatikva, the hope. Now, the underground considered its soldiers to be prisoners of war, and their execution a war crime. But the British saw them as terrorists, and their sentence as a deterrent. I leave it to you to decide whether the Irgun or the British were right about that whole freedom fighter terrorist thing. But history tells us clearly that the British were wrong in their hopes for deterrence. And so the Bloody Spring turned toward a summer of all-out warfare, after the four were executed. Now, another story that deserves to be told in full at some point is the audacious attack on the Akko prison itself. When on May 4th, in the wake of these four executions, less than three weeks before, the Irgun penetrated to the very armored heart of the British occupation in order to free two dozen of its members. It was a blow from which British prestige would never recover, especially because by this time everyone knew that their occupying army was on the way out the door, but never downplayed the ability of an army like that to do damage in the last months of the struggle. Because the Aku prison break was a fantastic success, but it came at a high price for the Ergun. Nine attackers were killed and eight captured. The latter were tried, and on July 8th, three more death sentences were handed down. Three more death sentences, which by the summer of 1947, the Jews knew were no longer an empty threat. And remember, Begin had already warned that the Irgun viewed the execution of their prisoners as premeditated murder. So four days after the verdict was given, the Irgun kidnapped two British Army Intelligent Corps sergeants, Clifford Martin and Mervyn Pace, in Netanya. They then announced that hanging its fighters would result in the subsequent hanging of the British soldiers. It was a standoff, and the Holy Yeshuv held its breath to see what would be. Now, Begin had won the first round of a similar struggle when they managed to get Drov Gruner's first execution order delayed. But, remember, the army's new directive stated clearly it is most important that the death sentences should be carried out irrespective of the possible repercussions from the Jews. And so, khaviv Nakar, and Weiss were executed on July 29, 1947. And the bodies of Clifford Martin and Mervyn Pace were found soon after, hanging from two trees in a forest near Netanya. It was a moment of horror, and the shockwaves rippled not only through the Shuve, but around the world. Menachem Begin characterized it as one of the most bitter moments of his life. But nevertheless, he felt that the sentence that he and his men had passed on these two sergeants had saved an untold number of Jews from the gallows, and was perhaps the final blow in the war for liberation. And indeed, Colonel William Gray, Inspector General of Police in the mandate, later said, quote, In 1947, Britain was still an empire. And an empire cannot allow itself one thing, to lose prestige and become a laughingstock. When the underground killed our men, we could treat it as murder. But when they erected gallows and executed our men, it was as if they were saying, we rule here as much as you. And that no administration can bear. Our choice was obvious, either total suppression or get out. And we chose the second. And the simple fact is, that Chaviv, Nakar, and Weiss were the last three of the Ole HaGardom. The next person to go to the gallows in the land of Israel will be Adolf Eichmann in 1961, the only person ever executed under law by the Israeli government. So the Ole HaGardom are a powerful piece in our story, and there's no doubt of their impact on the present chapter of the struggle for liberation. But before we move on to the final element of 1947, I want to take a moment to look back over the arc of time. Because martyrdom is hardly a new theme in the Jewish story. If you want to review its power as a foundation of Ashkenazi culture, go back to season 1, episode 22. Not to mention how that Ashkenazi subplot of martyrdom ends in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. But the truth is, it goes much further back, all the way to the story of Aseret Hauge Malchut, the ten who were killed by the kings, those ten great sages who died at the hands of Rome over the course of the three Roman Jewish wars and whose stories bound together as one event through Midrashim and liturgical poetry. You can revisit the height of their drama in our story with Rabbi Akiva back in Season 1, Episode 11. But for now, just recall the ten martyrs of the kingdom and really all of the martyrs who followed them were victims of a world that insisted that the Jews be something other than what we are. Victims of the attempt to dominate Israel so thoroughly that we would be subsumed into the surrounding culture and thereby erased from history. And they all failed. Because the death of martyrs is never a deterrent. On the contrary, it's a motivator. Martyrdom has a power to bind together historical identity. It's an impetus for those who share its fate in the present to continue the struggle, and an inspiration for the future to look back on. Martyrdom is a means of tying together past, present, and future through an arc of heroism that runs through our story. And the oleha gadom fill this role, but in a unique fashion. Because if the martyrs of the last 2,000 years sent the message to their peers and down through the generations, don't lose hope. The kingdom of God lives on within you no matter what's happening outside and all around. Then these young men can tell us don't lose hope because the time has come. Am Yisrael is seizing the moment and reestablishing our kingdom which of course should always be an expression of God's kingdom. So I want to give the last word on such a powerful subject to Dove Gruner. The following is from a letter that he sent to his beloved commander, Menachem Begin, on the night of his execution. It's a bit long, but listen carefully, because it will illuminate many pieces of our story up to now. There are many schools of thought as to how a Jew should choose to live his way of life. One way is that of the assimilationists, who have renounced their Jewishness. There is also another way, the way of those who call themselves Zionists, the way of negotiation and compromise as if the existence of a nation were nothing but another transaction. They're not prepared to make any sacrifice, and therefore they have to make concessions and accept compromises. Perhaps this is indeed a means of delaying the end, but in the final analysis, it leads to the ghetto. And let us not forget this. In the ghetto of Warsaw alone, there were 500,000 Jews. The only way that seems to my mind to be right is the way of the Irgun Lumi the way of courage and daring without renouncing a single inch of our homeland. When political negotiations prove futile, one must be prepared to fight for our homeland and our freedom. This is the only way left to our people in their hour of decision. To stand on our rights, to be ready to fight, even if for some of us this way leads to the gallows. For it is a law of history that only with blood shall a country be redeemed. I am writing this while awaiting the hangman. This is not a moment at which I can lie. And I swear that if I had to begin my life anew, I would have chosen the exact same path, regardless of the consequences for myself. Your faithful soldier, Dove. On May fifteenth, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly, acting at British request, appointed 11 member Special Commission on Palestine, UNSCOP. It was afforded the widest powers to ascertain and record facts, to investigate all questions and issues relevant to the problem of Palestine, and was instructed to submit its recommendations to the UN by September 1st, in advance of the next session of the General Assembly. Now, the Arab states expected an easy victory in the UN, as they do now, and thus they were quite supportive of the idea of a multinational committee. They were less happy about the fact that UNSCOP was also empowered to look into the issue of displaced persons in Europe and not just to travel to the Middle East. And in many respects, the experience of the committee was identical to all the other committees and commissions that we've mentioned over the last two decades of our story. They travel for five weeks to Europe, to the land of Israel, Lebanon, and Transjordan as well. They received testimony from many of the exact same organizations and even individuals who had spoken to the Anglo-American Commission before them. And once again, the Zionists presented a happy, shiny face of progress and development in the Middle East, which made a deep impression on the committee, especially as the Jewish agency was able to produce settlers who spoke many of the native languages of the 11 committee members. And once again, the Arab Higher Committee, which represented Palestinian Arabs, declined to appear in any official capacity, but nonetheless, submitted a memorandum of their concerns and claims through back channels. But the regular pattern of Palestine problem solving committees was disrupted when the British towed the SS exodus into Haifa Harbor on July 18th. Now, you'll recall that though the Haganah had withdrawn from the street battles of the Irgun and the Lehi, they had not retreated from the war with the British. On the contrary, what they'd done is expand the front. Of illegal immigration. And as the British were scrambling to suppress the violence in the Yeshuv, they were also struggling on the high seas to control the wave of immigrants with which the Haganah aimed to flood the land of Israel. And toward that goal, since 1946, the Haganah had purchased and outfitted any ship that would float, filled it with desperate European Jews from the displaced person camps, and sent it sailing toward the shores of the homeland. By the summer of 1947, The British detention camps in Cyprus were bursting at the seams with more than 12,000 detainees, and the Haganah sensed that victory was at hand. Furthermore, they knew, just like Menachem Begin, that the whole world was now watching the drama playing out in the land of Israel, and in particular, that Unscop was in town. The time had come for a dramatic finale. And so on July 12th, the Exodus set sail from southern France flying a Honduran flag and claiming to be headed for Istanbul. Originally built to hold around 500, it was carrying 4,515 men, women, and children. Palmach skipper Ike Aronowitz was its captain, and the ship was manned by a crew of some 35 volunteers, mostly American Jews. The exodus was too large and unusual to go unnoticed, and indeed, like I said, the Haganah never had any intention to hide Even as the refugees began boarding the ship at a port in southern France, a British Royal Air Force plane was circling overhead, and a Royal Navy warship was waiting a short distance out to sea. The British shadowed the ship for days until on 18th of July, some 40 kilometers from the shore of Eretz Israel, they made their move. The boarding party didn't go unchallenged by the passengers and Haganah members on board and a night-long hand-to-hand fight ensued, in which one crew member, American volunteer Bill Bernstein, was clubbed to death, and two more passengers died of gunshot wounds. But in the end, the British Navy was victorious. Or, at least, in the short term. Because as they towed the Exodus into port, and proceeded to transfer the DPs onto three waiting ships for immediate return to Europe, Emil Sandstrom, the Swedish judge who chaired Unscop and several other members of the committee were there to watch. The Jews were shipped back to France, where they refused to disembark, and the French declined to cooperate with the British by forcibly removing them. What unfolded was 24 days in which the refugees remained in the ship's hold, refusing to disembark, and this despite a heat wave, shortage of food, crowding, and terrible sanitary conditions. World opinion rose in a wave of support. The French communist daily, La Humanité, described the ships as a floating Auschwitz, and the refugees raised a banner of a swastika painted over the Union Jack. British embarrassment grew until after three weeks of the standoff, desperate to bring the spectacle to any end, they decided to return the would-be immigrants back to Germany. They couldn't have made a worse decision, because the sight of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust being forcibly relocated to Germany caused an international uproar. John Colson, a diplomat at the British Embassy in Paris, actually cabled the foreign office with the following message. You will realize that an announcement of decision to send immigrants back to Germany will produce violent, hostile outbursts in the press. Our opponents in France, and I dare say in other countries, have made great play with the fact that these immigrants were being kept behind barbed wire in concentration camps and guarded by Germans. DP camps all over Europe erupted in protests and hunger strikes when they heard the news. Demonstrations were held on both sides of the Atlantic. And historians agree that the public embarrassment for the British played a significant role in the diplomatic swing of sympathy toward the Jews. And the members of UNSCOP itself later commented that the image of the exodus helped them press for an immediate solution for Jewish immigration and the question of Palestine. Because the UN Special Commission for Palestine issued its final report on August 31st, 1947, after witnessing these events. The committee was unanimous on certain basic ideas. That the Palestine mandate should become an independent state as soon as possible. Number one. Number two, that it should have a democratic political structure. And number three, that no matter what it looked like, it should constitute a single economic entity. There was, however, a split on the manner by which these principles should be implemented between two states and a binational state. But in the end, a majority of the committee's members, Canada, Czechoslovakia, Guatemala, the Netherlands, Peru, Sweden, and Uruguay, recommended that Palestine should be partitioned into separate Arab and Jewish states with Jerusalem and Bethlehem set aside as an international enclave under UN administration. And so... Despite the complications that lie ahead, all three of our oaths have now been annulled. The Exodus was certainly the last gasp of the nations oppressing Israel too much. The Irgun and the Lehi have obviously gone up like a wall to fight for our liberation. And now, for the first time, a body representing the nations of the world had declared the desirability of the return of the Jews to independence in at least some part Of our ancient homeland. There is a long road ahead between UNSCOP and the Declaration of Independence. But at this point in our story, you can see that the path is growing clearer each step of the way. I just want to thank a few people. But before I do, I want to make an exciting announcement. The Jewish story is having an official launch. This may sound strange if you've been listening to both seasons, but I want you to go right now to www.JewishStory.co, not com, .co, and you'll see that we've got a brand new website, and there you can find that we have a new iTunes channel too. Click on it, and if you love The Jewish Story, give me a good review, rate me, let's get that story out in front, and while you're there, you can join all those people who give their hard-earned money to make this show free and widely available and keep it happening, by clicking in the upper right-hand corner on that button that says, Be a Patron, and you can follow on through for a little bit of per-podcast support. The launch is happening, people. Keep your ear tuned for the content to come. I also want to thank the Land of Israel Network for creating a platform that allows me to reach so many wonderful people. That's thelandofisrael.com. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, p-a-r-d-e-s.org.il, for building an educational institution that allows me to touch the hearts and minds of so many wonderful Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.